a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, we are chatting to another uh, American uh, soldier, former soldier, I should say. Yes. He spent a total of about 37 years serving his country. 37? And it's not just <laughs> in one role. This guy has done multiple different things. He's uh, had more combat missions than you've had hot dinners. <laughs> more times than you've changed your undies, I reckon. He's gone. Where's he? Granada, Panama, first Gulf War, second Gulf War. Yeah, Afghan. it's been crazy. So he was pretty sure first up was just infantry, got into um, 82nd Airborne, Airborne God, like myself. God, G-O-D. God. <laughs> <laughs> From there, he was a U.S. Special Forces Green Beret. Yes. Then he went, I don't know if he went to Delta Force after, or we'll figure that out in a second, but he was Delta Force operator for 10 years as well, so obviously Chuck Norris for 10 years. Oh, yes. That's always exciting. Uh, and then he become OGA, which is uh, other- Other government agency. Yeah. So this, you know- That, there's, that can mean a lot of things. It, it does. This is, this is, yeah, it's one of those things, but they, they you know, they point towards the CIA- and essentially, it's a it's a mercenary, and I'm pretty sure he did mercenary work as well for other comp- uh, countries as well, mm. which is essentially a hide killer. Yeah. That's what it is. You go into another country. You're getting paid. Yep. Terry Taliban's out there, and Afghanistan pays him to go chase down Terry Taliban and put him down. He's had a very, very colourful career. Super colourful. Quick touch on his combat tours, uh, Grenada, Operation Urgent Fury, Panama, Operation Just Cause. At the start of Panama, he was involved with the Kurt Muse recovery. Kurt Muse was, in quotations, a uh, CIA spy, so they say. Yes. Uh, he was in a prison and- Panama's will be shit. Yeah. The American badass was the guy that breached the prison and the rest of the Delta boys and himself went in and- I heard that the DNA guy. from um, his hair created Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's bald. That's why he doesn't have any No, he had hair back in the day. I've seen the photos. But this guy has done, oh, what else when it comes to Iraq? Uh, Iraq, yeah. Iraq, Operations Desert Storm and Shield. Um, Somali, Operation Restore Hope. Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And Afghanistan, Operation Enduring Freedom. Both freedoms. And is he doing any other operations now? Um, just being Operation Cool, I suppose. American Freedom, <laughs> yeah. Trump. 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 <laughs> but let's just get him on and have a chat because this one is going to be hectic. He's just this guy's done just done so much. There's a lot more to it. His bio is massive. He has lived like three lives. Yeah. So let's get him on. Dale, how are you? And uh, welcome to the show. How you going, Dale? Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. So uh, it's uh three thirty-five now, PM, uh, Palm City Beach, Florida. Yeah, nice. Beautiful. Obviously, uh, just for the listeners, we've had a little bit of technical difficulties and it took us about half an hour to get this set up. We went from yeah, Teams to Zoom to Teams. Yeah, it was... Uh... Bloody pigeons. Anyway, we're here, we're here now, team. We're, we're here. here now. Mate, Dale, let's just start right from the start. Let's get, get to know you, where you grew up. What led you to join the, the armed forces? All right, so cool. Uh, well, first of all, again, thanks for having me on the show. Um, and uh, I always tell my podcast shows this will be the easiest podcast you ever do because, in fact, you guys can just go ahead and leave now, come back in a couple hours, drink some coffee, go shopping. <laughs> I got this. No, <laughs> I got a tendency to ramble. So sometimes you guys jump in there and shut me up. Go, um, go for it. So, a little bit about my background. Um, I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version of it. So, my father was in the Army for 20 years, a U.S. Army Vietnam vet. Um, I grew up in the military culture. Most of my childhood uh, years were spent in Germany. My mother's Germany, German. And uh, eventually we moved back to the United States. I was about 16 years old. <clears throat> my dad retired from Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And uh, then he did something that, uh, you know, today I'm kind of like stymied because we ended up moving to San Francisco, the Bay Area. That's where he got a job. And uh, it's a culture shock for me, right? So growing up in the military, military culture, you know, even I'm sure it's the same with your military, you know, it's a different, uh, it's a different society compared to civilian culture, right? Yeah. Um, on so many levels. And when you grow up in that, and that's all you knew, you know, and then suddenly you go, I really went from one extreme to the other. The, the, the hard extreme was San Francisco, which is Gotham City. I mean, it's like the most liberal enclave on the planet, and it's a mess. Don't believe the postcards, by the way. Um, I'm going to tell you right now. I work out there on occasion as a contractor. Just came back a week ago. I was out there working literally downtown San Francisco, and uh, it's it's really a sad, sad state of affairs, but I'm not here to really talk about that. But anyways, um, that actually, so as a kid growing up in San Francisco for a minute, I realized that uh, this was not for me. I had a hard time assimilating, you know, with the civilian kids, just, you know, how are they different? You know, on, on a military basis, you know, growing up in Germany, all the way across the United States, military bases, you know, at the end of the day, at five o'clock, when the bugle plays and they lower the flag, you know, it's it's standard regulation that anybody in uniform, whether you're driving a car or walking, you have to stop, get out and render salute until the flag is lowered and the bugle stops playing. Well, even the kids and the dependents, we would do the same thing. The bugle play, we put our hands across yeah, our heart and come to a position of attention. You know, that's how I grew up. If you went to the movie theater on, um, you know, in the military concern, um, before the movie started, they played the national anthem, right? And everybody stood up and did the same thing, right? Yeah. Rendered respects. And uh, so there was a certain kind of discipline and regimentation that I was used to growing up, you know, you know, being a, a, a military member. And so 
it was different and I had a hard time adjusting to the civilian, you know, civilian culture. I couldn't make any friends. Um, you know, it just became really tough. And all I could think about was I got to get back into to the military life. You know, I got to go back to what's familiar. And so when I was 17, I ran down and um, unbeknownst to my father enlisted in the military on the delayed entry program. And then after I did all that, I told him about it, it broke his heart because, um, you know, my father, has 11th grade education. My mom had a ninth grade education. Nobody on either side of the family had a college education. You know, we're poor, you know, white folk, you know, that's it. And uh, and so my dad really wanted me to be the first one to go to college. And I I sucked as a student, man. I, 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 you know, if I got D's, I was doing pretty damn good, you know. <laughs> damn good. <laughs> At least that was my logic, you know. Uh, but uh, I almost failed high school at the last year, man. I had to take summer school classes just to pass. Um, but I, I made it in the military um, with the promise that, you know, to my father that I would get my college degree also, you know, I, I wanted to do both, you know, yeah. I was hoping yeah. to appease him. I go, look, dad, I want to be like you, you know, and, uh, but that wasn't enough for him. You know, he, he wanted better for me, which actually I did the same thing for my son. My son, um, I had high hopes for him in the ninth grade. He was already being uh, courted by Yale, Harvard, uh, Clemson university, many universities already in the ninth grade. You know, because my son has, you know, very, did very well in school. And uh, so my plan was to, you know, see him go to college. Um, he wanted to be a, a veterinarian. And uh, so he, he tried to enlist and I, I put my foot down <laughs> and I stopped him. And I got him to go through college. He got his four-year degree. Um, and then his next step was going to go to grad school and then get, go to veterinary school. Um, that's my mal-in-law barking. Yeah. And uh <laughs> Finally, he was on the road to success, guys, college degree, four year degree. And then he saw me on television um, on Discovery Channel, One Man Army. And he goes, that's it, Dad, I'm doing the Army. He, he, that was it, you know. And I'm like, all right, well, at least you got a four year degree. You know, you check the block anyhow. So my son's also a Green Beret Ranger. Oh, wow. Oh, fuck. <laughs> um, and so <clears throat> so anyways, um, so as my journey goes, I joined the military Um Ended up, uh, so I, the recruiters lied. I mean, they always lie, right? So I signed up to be an Army Ranger, and then right when I was getting a ship out, he goes, oh, sorry, uh, there's no more Ranger slots. You just have to go to 82nd. It's no problem. Just tell the Sergeant Major you want to go to Ranger school. Just like that, they'll sign a piece of paper, and you're on your way. <laughs> it wasn't that easy. Look, I told the Sergeant Major I want to go to Ranger school. He's like, you go pack sand. In fact, dig a foxhole. Shut up, you know? Um, <laughs> it doesn't work that way, but, you know, little did I know. So I did my four years in 82nd. I was in an infantry company in the Airborne Division, and then um, and then my platoon became the 82nd Airborne Division Alert Platoon. Um, what, so sorry, what, what year did you Orange join? Reconnaissance Patrol. What year Orange. did you join? I went in 1981. 1981. Um, and how old yeah. were you at that stage? 17, did you say? Yeah, I, I just turned 18. Just yeah. turned 18. Jesus Christ. And straight into the 82nd Airborne. <laughs> <laughs> how, was the, how, how was the operational tempo at that stage for the U.S. military? Was there, was there anything happening or was it just... Yeah, so you were in the post-Vietnam era yep. during that time, right? Yeah. And uh, so it was kind of a weird time, you know. In fact, uh, they used to call the 82nd Airborne Division the Jumping Junkies because everybody was a pothead, man, you know, smoking <laughs> the marijuana. The funny shit was, you know, if you, you know, we had these like three, four story high barracks and guys would, you know, they were pretty clever how they smoked marijuana because it was illegal then still is now, but uh, <laughs> they would, they would blow it and they had a pipe that would go out the window and then they blow the smoke out the window. So it didn't fill up the room. And then they wiped all the marijuana seeds off the, the ledges and they would fall on the ground. And they had all these marijuana plants growing at the base of the building. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was just the weirdest thing, man. I mean, it was, it actually reminded me when I think back, 
my platoon in particular, we were considered the best platoon in the 82nd Airborne Division. That's why we were selected to be the LERP platoon, the Long Range Reconnaissance Platoon. But when I look back at the platoon, um, it was like the movie Platoon from Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just a bunch of, you know, a bunch of, you know, blue collar kids, you know, joined up different national or races and things like that, you know, and we'd go to the field and we soldier hard. And then we come back on a weekend and we party hard and we go back to the field. And it, and it was just, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol, not drugs, but marijuana, alcohol and hookers, you know, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Back to the field and, <laughs> Sounds cool. You know, it was pretty, pretty wild times back then. Um, even my platoon sergeant was a uh, former Marical platoon sergeant in Vietnam. And he actually reminded me of the character Barnes in the movie platoon with the scar down his face, yeah, yeah. just like him, his attitude. Um, uh, but to this day, the guy made one hell of an impression on me, you know? And, uh, one thing I didn't know about him is as tough as he was, um, I mean, he didn't bullshit with the, the troops, never smiled, um, but he, he, he cared about us, you know, and uh, I really got that impression. And he, and he trained us well. And uh, there's some things to this day that I still remember and that I use a lot in uh, my, my coaching performance coaching classes as well. But uh, <clears throat> that led to um, so I hit this point where I'm at this four year mark. I'm 22. I'm married. I got a little baby girl. Um, I have no job skills outside the military. And I'm thinking, man, do I want to stay in the army and keep digging foxholes just to fill them back up and clean my weapon for three days under a tree every day? I mean, I thought it was better than that. Right? <laughs> and so I remember I called my mom and I was, you know, getting ready to, I had a choice enlist or get out at this point, my four-year mark. So I called my mom, say, Hey mom, I said, I think I'm not getting out of the army. How about you putting up with me, my wife and my daughter for about two, three months, I get on my feet, you know, and She's like, no, not no, but hell no, right? In a strong German <laughs> accent. <laughs> so my mom made a choice for me. You know, I was like, okay, I guess I'm staying in. Well, it just so happened at the same time, I got a letter from the Delta Force. And it was saying that I was eligible to apply to try out, right? Yep. So yep. And a lot of people, um, you know, everybody said, oh, I got the letter from Delta Force. They wanted me, but I want to do something better, right? It's, that's not how it works. The, 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 the letter said, listen, we scanned all the military records looking for guys that meet the minimum criteria. Oh, yeah, you were one of those guys. And if this would interest you, please come out and try out. And, and really all, what that meant was I had to go through some shrink evaluations, physical fitness tests, background checks. Um, assume I pass all of that. Then I get the letter goes, OK, now you're actually eligible to try out and go through the Delta Force Assessment Selection Program. And uh, so that's where they start necking it down. Um, and that actually happened to me. So make a long story short, I made it through uh, Delta Force Selection at the age of 23. At the time, I was the youngest guy ever yep. to make it through. In fact, uh, the average age was 33. Oh, Most guys that go through were uh, Green Berets or Rangers. Um, I'm just a grunt out of the 82nd Airborne Division, right? And I didn't know if I was coming or going sometimes. You know, I was very inexperienced. <laughs> and uh, But I made it. And it's not just physically making the course or the, or the selection process. Um, it's more, more than that. At the end, you, you know, you're doing more psychological evaluations. Then you have to sit in front of the commander's board, which basically the only way I can describe that, you're sitting in the middle of a room. Um, in a chair, straight up and down, your hands on your on your on your thighs, <clears throat> and uh, you got about fifteen sergeants, major, commanders, psychologists, all sitting around you, big horse shape, you know, uh, ring around you in your chairs, and they just start grilling you, asking you all kinds of questions, which you don't realize at the time, but there's really no right answer. Yeah. But man, you're trying to find the right answer, and they just like to see you squirm and see what you come up with. But uh, <clears throat> um, but anyways, you know. I'm, 
Uh, so my class had 110 candidates. Normally it's 100 candidates. Um, mine had 110 this time. I don't know why, but it had 110. And uh, they only have two selection courses a year. So of my co- my class, 110 of us started, six of us completed the training, and three of us were selected. Uh, um, yeah. So, you know, that puts kind of perspective. We had some classes where only one guy had made it. We call him the million-dollar man. So um, it is by far – you know, and I know people, especially the guys that are out there in love with the seals and stuff, they don't want to hear this, but it's the hardest selection process in the world, bar none. Because when you go through the Delta Force selection, you go through on your own. It's an individual effort. Yep. You're always, yep. you're by yourself. In fact, they don't even acknowledge your name. They, they assign you a color number every day, a new color number. And that's it. You walk around as Purple 22 today, you know, and that's how you report Purple 22, you know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> there's no encouragement, there's no, no discouragement. There's, they don't, they don't smile. They don't get, they don't browbeat you. They don't yell at you. Um, they don't even really answer your questions. You know, Sergeant, uh, how much time do I have? Do the best you can. Uh, should I be done by this time? Do the best you can. You know, it's always a very stoic. Yeah. Right? And I know that because I was also a cadre for a while after I got there. So, okay. you know, I, I know how to play the shtick. And so um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a very difficult course because you're literally going through everything by yourself. You don't know what the standard is, the standard of performance. You don't know how much time you have, how fast you have to go, when it's going to end. You're basically, you're, you're given uh, grid coordinates and you're told to go and you go to another location, you show up, you report in, you're given more grid coordinates and just keep doing this. And you don't know when the madness is going to end, but nobody's yelling at you and uh, you're not you don't have anybody else to walk with and talk about it, <laughs> this whole thing, right? You're on your own. And so when you're by yourself over time, right, physically, you know, it's very hard because you're doing it through the mountains, yep. uh, through three states, in fact. Um, and so you're walking through mountainous terrain, um, carrying, you know, quite a bit of weight on your back. Um the weather conditions are always the worst because they make sure they plan these things for late fall and early spring. So when you have snow, wet and rain and cold, um, and then, you know, Day in and day out, physically, you start to deteriorate, no matter what kind of shape you're in. And once your body's gone, the only thing that's got going to keep you going is up here. Yep, and mind. this is what they're really testing. Um, when you're when the wheels fall off the machine, you know, can you still drive it? Can you push it? Can you pull it and get it over the finish line? And um, so all the stress that you incur is your own. It's, you know, it's internal. It's you internalize. You create your own stress. And I won't lie, man, I tell people all the time, there came a point towards the end of the selection process, the numbers were dwindling, the weather was bad. Um, I was standing out in a farm field up to my knees um, and my body was just broke. It was wrecked. Um, Because if you you push yourself every day, because you know what, you don't know what the standard is, so you do the best you can. So imagine every day you're going 110% balls out and you don't know when it's going to end. You're just hoping that you got enough in the tank to finish. And then all of a sudden, you know, the machine breaks and you're standing in the mud up to your knees and you can't get your legs out because you're up to your knees in mud and it's raining and it's cold and it's foggy and you can't see the next RV. And, uh, and you just, at that point, you're like, okay, I can't get out of here and nobody's coming. What am I going to do? And I remember standing there crying. I mean, I cried like a little girl, you know, like you know, somebody come and pick me up and I realized <laughs> nobody's coming, man. Nobody's coming to get you out of here. Yeah. And, uh, and I realized that my next RV was on a mountain somewhere in the fog in that direction. Because <clears throat> I had a strip map. I didn't even have a map. Right. So uh, it was actually a map that I drew by pencil. I had like a minute to draw it. 
And, uh, you know, and I'm navigating off this thing. I'm hoping to God, you know, I got it right. So I realized if I want to quit, um, it's not like, you know, they're going to come looking for me and go, okay, hey, we're going to get you out of here. It's like the only way I can quit is I got to go to the next RV, which happens to be on top of that mountain. And I shit. So I might as managed to talk myself into getting out of there, you know, lifting those legs up, grinding out, grinding up the mountain, got to the top. And voila, there he is, the RV, you know, with the, with the cadre standing there. And I reported, I can't remember what my color number was that day, <clears throat> some arbitrary number, you know, red 22, you know. And, and uh, as I approached the truck and the RV, I thought about it. I was like, man, why would you quit now? Yeah. On top of the yeah. mountain. You just roll back down, you know? And so, you know, and I remember the vision, the dream, you know, and I realized, you know, yeah, you know, that you made it, you got out of the mud, you know, and you got up the mountain. Yeah. So keep cool going. Us. So I kept on trucking, you know, but uh, it's the, the stress, the pressure you're under is what you put yourself under. Of and course. really what the test or what the tr- uh, selection process does it really tests every guy out there on his own. And, and basically they're checking to see if you've got the, the mental wherewithal and the strength to continue the mission in spite of the fact that you're physically destroyed. In fact, here's how tough it is. My teammate, all right, after later on in the unit, he was my teammate, um, but he went through selection with me. He went through with two broken tibias, two broken legs. Broke both oh, legs. He didn't tell nobody. He didn't tell nobody. Holy shit. And he powered through with two broken tibias, right? And uh, he makes it to the board with me. And then they, they basically reveal that, you know, his legs are broken. And I mean, literally <laughs> broken. And uh, and so they're like, that's the guy we want right there. Yeah. You know, this yeah. guy finished with two broken legs. It was mind over matter. And his body didn't matter at that point, you know? And uh, so they, 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 they selected him. He went to Texas for a year um, to San Antonio down there to a hospital to a veterinarian. Actually, and they installed rods into his legs, um, let him mend. And then a year later, he came right to the unit and he was on my team, you know, and turned out to be one of the best operators we had. He's a really good guy. Um, and so that kind of gives you some perspective on the selection process. It's not like you're running, going into this course with a group, you know, you're all carrying a log and you're yelling and you roll around the sand and the water and getting wet, you know, and you're drawing your strength from everybody else. Um, you're it, you know, you're the only one doing this thing all by yourself. You know, it's kind of lonely out there too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, out in the woods for days and days and mountains and stuff. And, you know, and you see little bears and little animals here and there, but it's just you. You know, and it wears my mind. So I did all that. Um, just, just a quick one. Like in regards to the letter, when you received the letter from uh, when you're in the eighty second Airborne, how was that? How was that delegated to you? Was that sent out to a whole bunch of soldiers, or are you obviously on a list already? Your officers, you know, your uh, commanders yeah. have gone. Yep, he's probably yeah. suitable. Yeah, Let's what they push do his is, name uh, out. Yep. So they have a they have a section of the unit. It's part of their selection. Um, team if you will and training training division if you will and so what they do is they canvas all the military records right and they know what the criteria is the minimum criteria says so they literally scan all the records and go okay who meets the minimum requirements right oh gotcha uh, age minimum age 22 you have to have a gt score of uh, 110 or higher which is like a military iq test they're looking at your iq scores right um, they're looking to see if you've ever had any type of what they call a non-judicial punishment. Article 15 has been in trouble. Um, you have to have a minimum rank of E5. So if you meet all these criteria, then they specifically send you the letter. 
Okay. Yeah. Right, direct to you. Right. So that's how you get the letters. Right. So they looked at my records and go, that's one of the guys. Um, now what's really interesting is how many people really don't even qualify. Um, and so, so this is why now the unit actually scans at the time. It was just army wide. Now it's actually military wide. They scan the records of the Navy, the air force, yeah, everybody wow. in the U S military trying to draw bodies because so few people actually make it that they had to broaden the pool. And so we actually, uh, we, they now actually have, I think at least one Navy seal that was on seal team six. No way. That tried out and made it. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so he, he so was a Navy, a he was a Navy seal and a Delta force operator. Right. Yeah. So that's, we used to work cool. really closely with these guys, that. you know, and, and here's, you know, here's another thing that people don't know is seal team six started after the Delta force. And when they decided we needed to have a maritime court counter terrorist capability, um, so, we were the ones to basically help them set up their what they call T-O-N-E, which is training operations equipment, um, you know, basically a doctrine. And so we helped them with that part, you know, a lot with the training, how to set up a counterterrorist type unit. And uh, we had a big and we, we do a lot of joint operations as well. Um, can you still see me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. My, my screen, just, screen just flipped around on me. Um, all right. So. Um, Anyway, where I'm going with all that is it's basically they canvas all canvas all the military records um, because they just can't find enough bodies. If you think about it, my class, 110 guys, three of us got picked and they're going to do that twice a year. You know, it's kind of hard to fill the ranks. But the problem, the, the at least the good thing about the organization is they're not going to lower the standard or compromise anything yeah. just to fill the ranks. Um you know, I mean, that's the reality. And thank God it's probably one of the last organizations in the military that I'm aware of that hasn't done that. The U.S., you know, special forces, ranger school have all dropped their standards. And, of you course. know, the commanders will come out and say, no, that's bullshit. And I'll actually I know the cadre, a lot of them. They're actually cadre that run these guys through and they've all said it, you know. Yeah, it's, you know, we've got to have women, you know, and they'll recycle yeah. the hell out of them until they get them through this thing, you know. It's it's insane what's happening. The political correctness is yeah, the worst in yeah. America ever, man. It's, it's happening really in Australia too. Yeah, I, I know. You know, we're we're all kind of living this this damn nightmare, and uh, it's amazing, man, how we're just kind of doing all this weird stuff. But um, so, anyways, I went to the unit. I became a team leader. I was a breacher for a while. Did all the explosives work on the team. I was a team leader. Um, ended up being a troop sergeant for a while. Troop acting troop commander, OTC instructor. And at some point, I finally left, uh, went through the Q course, become a Green Beret, a light and heavy weapons uh, expert, went back to the unit, then eventually left the unit, went to the third special forces group um, where I did 18 months as an assistant operations NCO for the entire group. So I kind of coordinated a lot of the trainings and uh, operations and missions and things like that. And then I ended up being a uh, team sergeant on a team for a while. And then from there, I retired out, started a company called Global Security Consultants, um, did really well in that, doing a lot of nuclear security consulting. And this was right, right when 9-11 happened. So timing couldn't have been better. I got very rich, very fast. Um, and it concurrently, um, I got recruited by this OGA, right? Um, so I was able to run my company and work for the government as a, as a contractor. And then in 2004, I actually sold my company, G4S, Wackenhut. Um, they, they bought the company. They, they had no choice. They had to get rid of the competition, you know? And, uh, yeah. and that's what they had to do is buy, they bought me out. And I was, I was okay with that. So, um, <laughs> but anyways, I, I was working for the government, um, OGA. Uh, we're going we're gonna to call it OGA because, you know, 
I think everybody knows what OGA stands for, even though, you know, we try to dance around it. Can we can we break um, it down? Break it down for us Aussies, because obviously it's quite. It's not. We well, don't really. This, this we, is actually the first time I've actually heard of this. Term. Yeah, yeah. Oh, unless you, unless word. you, yeah. unless you're really army like I was, you know, you probably won't know what yeah. o, OGA is. But you know, yeah. majority of people here in Australia yeah. won't know. And uh, uh, so you know, OGA actually stands for other government agency, right? But some people call it Office of Government Affairs. Okay, right. <laughs> um, my dad used to call it the Alphabet Company. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of names <laughs> for it. Um, it's an intelligence organization, but um, and I'll just leave it at that part because I am kind of held a, to some non-disclosure agreements as well. So I don't want to get too much too many specifics. Of but uh, I'll su- suffice it to say this: um, I was working as a contractor for about nine and a half years, um, doing the same thing I did in the military, but with one or two other Americans on my side. And, you know, my whole band of uh, merry mercenaries, um, whether they were Iraqis or Afghanis or whatever they were, um, whatever country I was in. So my job was to go out and um, spot, assess, recruit, train, feed, pay and lead into combat uh, sheep herders and <laughs> goat herders and farmers, <laughs> man, you know, which was kind of cool because I'm taking these, you know, I'm taking raw material, if you will. And making these guys into soldiers. Um, and the reason why was to not only meet the enemy on the battlefield, but for intelligence collection purposes as well. Right. Um, so that was really the effort. And, um, you know, it's basically that's what I was for the just for the U.S. government alone. You know, as a hired contractor, you know, hire mercenaries yeah. to uh, do the bidding on our behalf. And uh, very satisfying work. You know, I did that for nine and a half years, uh, spent nine months out of every year downrange for nine and a half years. Uh, didn't bode well for my marriage. <laughs> one of my one of my many marriages. And uh, <laughs> no, I'm not bragging. <laughs> but I'm just being honest, you know. People are comps up. Why do you keep getting married? Because I'm not a goddamn quitter, you know. <laughs> like, well, I, you're right. Why am I doing this? <laughs> I just want what everybody else wants. You know, everybody, every other man wants out there, you know. And, uh, you know, it's tough. Uh, it's tough to be a professional soldier. And, uh you know, and a, and a decent husband. Not that I'm a bad guy. I'm actually a good guy, but I'm just never around. So yeah, my wife doesn't know how good I really am, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but anyways, um, so yeah, I did that. And then nine and a half years. And then the weirdest thing happened around 2011, two things happened. One, I got discovered by Discovery Channel, right? So <laughs> I wasn't looking to be on TV, but I get this call. And before you know it, they're asking me if I'd like to be on a TV show called One Man Army. And uh, oh, yeah. I myself, yeah, I'm a one man army. And so why not? You know, and, uh, and so I, I kind of thought of it as kind of be cool because I thought I was in the sunset years of my military career and my paramilitary career. And I thought this would be a good way to close the chapter. Little did I know that that was just the beginning of the chapter. But uh, so I did that show, did well. Um, and then I was discovered again by NBC. Um, they called me uh, and they were like, hey, we liked what we saw. Would you like to try out for this TV show? So I ended up on Stars and Stripes with Terry Crews. Oh, yeah. Ayla yeah. Ali, you know, a lot of the celebrities cool. are out there. Um, and it was a reality show. It was pretty cool. Um, and we did that. And then that happened. After that happened, I ended up got surrounded by a management team. Suddenly the uh, a production company popped up, a conservative production company out of Dallas, Texas. And uh, what they wanted to do was use me as a poster boy and kind of create a production company and lean more to the right than way to the left. Right. And so they wanted to bring in veterans for acting roles, you know, and give a lot of people on the right an opportunity to come in is, you know, here's a weird dynamic about Hollywood. You know, if you're a a conservative, 
and you're discovered, I mean, it's like you're a leper, man. We're going to kick you out, right? <laughs> they don't want nothing to do with you. It's, you know, you're either all left or you're all out, you know, and so yeah. you're left out. And so, you know, it's, it makes it tough, you know, for people to get in that, that industry, that institution because of that. So this is why this company popped up, said, hey, we're going to help people on the right because they should be able to indulge in this as well, right? And so it's, it started as that, and I spent a couple of years doing TV shows and different movies and, and uh, hobnobbing, you know, meeting people. And, but um, what I finally realized pretty kind of took me two years to kind of really grasp it all was that Hollywood, Hollywood is fake. Let's fake it. Let's, let's face it. Even actors are fake, man. They're yeah. faking it, right? It's a job, and yeah. they want me to fake it even more. And I'm like, man, this is not this is not my character, you know? And uh, I couldn't stand a lot of the people that I had to be around because they're just, you know, just really entitled brats, the adult <laughs> brats, you know, on top of that, you know? And, uh, and so I ended up going to, uh, from there I went to Hong Kong and I ran security detail for a multi-billionaire investment banker for a while. I lived oh, in Hong awesome. Kong. And that's where I actually met my wife. She's Indonesian. Um, she went back to Indonesia. I went back to the States. And then one thing led to another. I went to Indonesia to go see my wife. It's funny what women will make you do, right? Yeah. Get married. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyways, when I got there, I started looking around. And I saw some business opportunities in Indonesia. Um, and I decided to, uh, let me try to exploit this. So I got on social media, Facebook, in fact. And I joined uh, Tactical Indonesia, started networking with guys on there. And that led to me meeting a whole lot of other businessmen. Um, and then I ended up partnering up with another guy, another billionaire in Jakarta. And we formed a, a business. And then uh, from there, that segued into my wife and I, you know, pulling 10 pegs and moving to Bali. And we started our own company down there almost four and a half, five years ago, I guess. And uh, so we have a security company in Bali. Uh, we provide explosive detector dogs, narcotic yep. detector dogs, patrol attack dogs for all the Marriott properties um, and a lot of the local venues. So if you're listening to this and you go, you've been to Bali, um, yeah. you saw canines, you know, badasses, that were probably my dogs. So <laughs> uh, many we, Australians we really guy there. <clears throat> yeah, we, we dominated that sector down there pretty, pretty easily because up to that point, everybody was um, – faking the funk you know they're walking around pet dogs around the car pretend like they're explosive dogs they're getting paid for it and then i came in and i put a stop to that crap uh we in fact we're the only licensed canine company there yep wow. uh, in part because my wife um she, you know she made a lot of things happen but so you know um and then also kind of backing up a little bit more to the military side again so even though i did the oga thing went down range um then it never ended there. 2015, 2016, as you're probably aware, and it's all over the internet. You know, I got involved in uh, some real mercenary work and ended up, uh, one of the places that I ended up was Yemen um, yep. on behalf of the Emirati uh, government with an 11 man strike team, international strike team, guys from the Legion, um, you know, Morocco. Um, actually, I had an American Iranian on there who was a Green Brave medic. <laughs> pretty cool guy. Pretty big, too, man. Uh, but it was 11 of us. And we started prosecuting targets there on behalf of the Emirati government. Um, prosecuting or putting them down? You say prosecuting. Uh, it's very, it's a very, very, that, very yeah. broad term. Yeah. It, <laughs> is it prosecuting or putting them down? You do have to have, well, you know what? Actually, to be honest with you, our mission was not to capture anybody. Um, the targets we went after, oh, okay. we've got that. We've got it. Right, eliminate them. They were bad guys, and yeah. uh, so there's a lot of you know 
<laughs> there's a lot of D-Rog out there, especially a lot of leftist groups in the Middle East. You know, they're, they're you know, they're mad because, you know, we dunced a lot of guys that uh, they thought they were good guys. Of course, they're always terrorists are always good guys to them. And uh, <laughs> but we were very careful about, um, you know, our target. You know, when we we looked at a target, it's like, OK, is this really a target and why? And, uh, you know, and I made sure personally because it was my job to run the entire operations, all of it from soup to nuts, um, trainings and execution. And so, you know, for me, morally, I wanted to make sure that I'm not going to go out and off some dude because, you know, the client, you know, got dick measuring contest going on with this guy. You know, I don't know what's going on. You know, I got to make sure he's legit. Yeah. And so the people we targeted were bad guys. OK. And if you think in Yemen, for example, in Yemen, you've got the Muslim Brotherhood which, oh, by the way, was funding, all right, Al-Qaeda, ACAP is what they're called, Al-Qaeda Arabic Peninsula, right? They were funding them and building them barracks, apartments, literally. I mean, thousands of them, right? I've got video of all this crap. Um, so you got brother, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood supporting Al-Qaeda, which was kind of the action arm for another group, uh, politicians that were there, okay, that were supposedly these Nobel Prize winners, which was bullshit, um, you know, and then, you know, and then you had, um, you had ISIS there, yeah. Um, you know, ISIS facilitators, um, enablers, guys who were actually running the pipeline, feeding person, uh, persons and bombs into Syria. Um, you had the Houthis there, all right, the Iranian-backed rebels. And then you also had uh, the only good guys were over there was the Yemenese militia, and they were getting their ass handed to them, you know. So, um, you know, it was basically just a hornet's nest and uh, who's who, you know, environment. And so we were probably the only you know, white faces over there except for <laughs> on, on our team, the Iranian, um, you know, and so we had to keep it very low key, low profile, everything that we did. Um, How many so, target style? I'm sorry. How many targets did you guys take down? I'll, I'll say this the list. It was over 42 um, and it was spread over three countries. So it wasn't just one country. Yeah, right. um, I, I can't name the other countries, but yeah. um, the whole thing with Yemen came out. So look, you know, the old saying, the military, whatever you do downrange stays downrange. It's like going to Las Vegas. Yeah. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, except for herpes. For some reason, it seems like some <laughs> SEALs have a hard time with that concept because we were all beholden to that OPSEC. And I was like, yeah. look, we don't have to talk about what we're doing. We're getting paid a lot of money, and we're doing, you know, we're doing God's work. We're taking out terrorists, man. And um, to me, that was enough. Well, a couple of years later, I started getting this weird phone call um, from a very prominent um, journalist. And then he kept, you know, I kept calling, kept texting me and I wouldn't answer. And I'm like, who is this guy? And then one day at the airport, the phone rings, I pick it up. Hello. And I'm getting ready to board. And it's this guy. And uh, he's like, hey, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, your activities in Yemen. Bah, 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 bah. I'm like, whoa. And I go, uh, listen, I got to get on an aircraft. I'll call you back later. Click. I never call him back, of course. And then a couple of days later, he calls me again. He goes, listen, um, let me have your ear for just a second. He goes, I'm going to publish my story about you, what you did in the, in the Yemen. He goes, now you can give me your side of the story or the world gets to hear my side of the story. And I'm like, I don't fuck that germs, about. aren't they, journalists? They're just grubs. Yeah, I said, I don't know what you're talking about, Wills. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about, Wills? I'm sticking to my story, right? And uh, little did I know that already another seal that was on that team who was uh, later on, I was discovered that the guy was just a, you know, he was just a wreck, man. He had lost his trident. He shot his own guys with a machine gun. He thought had blanks and it just, this oh, guy couldn't fuck. be more effed up than you can imagine. Right. And, uh, but we didn't know that. And nor did the, uh, 
the boss, the big boss, who's actually a good friend of mine. Um, this guy was his partner. And he, you know, and there's another story behind that. You know, it was coming out in the book, by the way. <laughs> a little selfless plug. Hey, book. Hey, book. Yeah, nice. Now, I'm actually working on it. Hopefully, I have it out in a few months. But yep. uh, it's going to be kind of a cool story. So, anyways, um, so it turns out this guy goes to a very prominent uh, news organization. He goes, hey, I got a story. And what he was trying to do, and what he did do, is he went to Hollywood and was trying to pimp this story and make a movie out of it. And I wouldn't necessarily have had a problem with that, except he just went ahead and told, I gave up all our names and phone numbers on the oh, team. Shit. Oh, shit. Yeah, he just ratted us all out. That's why this guy's calling me. What Otherwise, he would have never known I was a part of this thing. Yeah. Right? And so that's what really got my ass. It's like, man, this guy broke, you know, he broke the code. You know, you don't do that shit because people get hurt and get killed over that. In fact, later on, one of the guys on my team, all right, got shot through the belly on Fort Bragg by, by Carlo of Arabs. He was out jogging. Holy shit. Comes to the corner, boom, they drive by, bam, 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 right to the gut. All right. And so, and then another guy, the guy that's the organization leader, um, owner, um, his synagogue got attacked. By, oh, wow. Got three people were killed in it, right? Mass murder. Um, and so we're starting to wonder, it's like, you know, is this all, this all happens at the same time with stories coming out, you know? And so this is, you know, whether it was a consequence of this story or not, doesn't matter. The point is you don't do it because that could happen. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Personally, I travel a lot. You know, I've been, uh, you know, I've been over 97 countries, either worked in it, lived yeah, in well. it, traveled to it. And every country I go to, somebody recognized me. Somebody says, hey, are you American badass? You know, <laughs> like, was. Uh, why? Well, who, well, you know, why do you want to know that? Who, you know, I got met him first, man. But, uh, you know, but uh, so people do recognize me. And so I've got to, you know, I'm I'm extra vigilant as a, as a consequence. I have to be. Um, but anyways, this, the story comes out and uh, <clears throat> wasn't quite the way it was supposed to be. And so I thought, damn. And next thing you know, I get all this stuff going on Twitter and, you know, you got. Elizabeth Warren and you know senators calling for the investigation and blah 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 and then everybody's calling me a uh, they're calling me a murderer using weapons of mass destruction oh, well. <laughs> you know all this crazy <laughs> shit right suddenly I'm like this freaking bad guy and these are Americans talking about me like this yeah. other journalists they don't even know me they weren't even down there didn't even know what we were doing right they're just out there just slinging shit you know and so I decided well I, I better get ahead of it and. Um, and so before it gets too far down the road, and I did, I got on a couple, I got on soft rep, a couple other uh, sites and I uh, told the story, you know, and I decided I'm going to tell the, I'm going to tell the, how it really happened, you know, and I'm going to dispel this, this rumor that we're just arbitrarily going out, just killing everybody, you know, trying to get one guy. We were very precise in everything we did. Uh, we tried to minimize collateral effects, you know, that was my responsibility to make sure that that happens as well. Um, and I sleep good at night, you know, um, the right guys got what they had coming to them, you know, and yeah. no, you know, no civilians were, you know, were hurt unless they were, you know, they say in a firefight, right? There's no, there's no spectators in a firefight. When the bullets start flying, if you're still hanging around, you're not a spectator anymore. You're a spotter, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, responder, yeah. You're not a spectator. <laughs> it's so true. You know? you're, you're calling shots for somebody, you know, you know, you're out of here, man. Um, so I, I did that for a bit, you know, and then, uh, so I'm at this point in my life where, you know, I got to be honest with myself and even my wife, you know, my wife asked me where I was going. And I told her, I said, wow, you know, I got to go train some people, you know, I'll be right back. And I lied to her. She didn't know what I did for like over a year. Right. And it started all <laughs> creeping out. It's like, what the hell? And, uh, but, um, 
it's what I do. You know, it's, I, I feel like, you know, I'm always going to go back and take a drink from the well. If I get another shot at it, you know, yeah, I like to do, you know, it's, um, I'm in shape. I can do it at the time. I was 50, I think 55, 56, 55, I think, um, oldest guy on the team, but I'm running everything, you know, and, uh, you know, they're keeping up with me. I'm not keeping up with them. And I just feel like that's uh, who I am and that's what I do. I'm good at it. And, um, I'm doing it for the right reasons. You know, it's not because I have a bloodlust and I want to kill innocent people. I just hate terrorists, man. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. (laughs) No, I'm with you. Mate, can we go back to your military career? I want to talk about some of these operations. Obviously you you've, as we spoke about in the intro, you've done basically every operation that the U S armed forces has done. You started off uh, in Grenada, uh, operation urgent fury. That was with 82nd airborne. Was it? Right. Yep. And that was that was 1983, so two years after you got in. Lots of four days. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a quick four day four day operation in out and done. No, that that one. So so let me just kind of tell you what happened there. So at this point, never seen any combat up until that point. I was in a, what they call a primary non commissioned officers course, and I was in Recondo school. In fact, I was out in the field going through Recondo school. And one morning, like a 0500, we see all these jet fighters flying around bragging, like, what's going on there, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, the uh, first sergeant comes out and he's calling names off, report back to your, report your unit, report back to your unit, report back to your unit, except for me. <laughs> like, why, not, why am I not reporting back? What's going on here, right? And then turns out, you know, they were spinning up for the invasion of a Grenada. And uh, I eventually went like within 24 hours. Um, but my platoon, I was in the alert platoon at the time, mm-hmm. and they had already deployed. They went, they went downrange, and uh, and I get back to. Uh, I remember I got back to the unit, and I think there was an ops sergeant there or somebody like that. And I'm like, "Where's everybody at? Oh, they're already gone. They left you, you know." <laughs> and I'm like, "Man, I want to go, you know." And so um, what they did is they put me on another cargo a- aircraft to. Um, escort a bunch of batteries, right. For radios and stuff, supplies. And so I came in on a supply flight and I arrived, uh, Point Salinas in Grenada. It was late in the evening before the sunset. And, um, it was just a, you know, just a, an airstrip they had there and they had a, um, small, um, a deco there called, uh, which is, we call it, uh, uh, departure airfield control officer, basically just a little talk area. And there was a Lieutenant there manning it. And I, I think he had a private with him or something like that. And I unload all the batteries and stuff, but there's nobody waiting for me to pick me up for my, for my unit, you know? <laughs> so I park all my shit and the planes all leave before it gets dark, you know? And so I'm standing there and waiting and waiting. And the lieutenant's like, Hey, um, you, you know, you can't stay here. And I'm like, Oh, there's my guys at my unit. And he didn't know. And, but nobody's here to pick me up. Apparently they didn't know I was coming either. They didn't get the word. And uh, this lieutenant's like, well, you can't stay here. You're going to have to leave. I go, where am I going to go? You know, I don't, I don't even know where I'm at. I'm in Grenada, right? You've got Cubans running around PRA, you know, and, and uh, people getting shot out here. What am I supposed to do? He goes, well, I don't know, but you can't stay here. I want a dick, man. So, you know, <laughs> so it was dark now. And I realized, well, I guess I'm going to go have to leave and go find my unit. Right. And uh, I don't know, man, I guess this is kind of, how old was I then? I was 20 years old. Right. So it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm about 20 years old and so I'm young and dumb. And I asked him, I said, can you give me some bullets? So he gives me some ammunition. I load up and, <laughs> and I walk off in the middle of the night. I just walk off in the middle of the night and I'm walking around the island of Grenada looking for my platoon, right? Which could be anywhere. 
And I just decided, well, I'm just, I can't stay there. So I might as well go for a walk. And so, so I walk and I'm walking, I'm walking. I walk all the way up to, uh, uh, was it St. George's, uh, the capital. And before I get in there, I hear a lot of noise and, you know, and I'm like, man, I don't think I want to go too far in there because I might get, you know, something might happen to me. Right. So I'm trying to stay in the shadows. So I turn around, I walk back in another direction. I'm walking for hours in the middle of the night. It's pitch black. And then all of a sudden I hear on the roads, on the side of the road, halt. Who goes there? <laughs> and I recognize the voice. There's a guy named Sean. He was on my team at the time. I go, Sean? Dale? You know, like, and, then we go, hey. <laughs> and uh, nobody knew I was coming. Here I am walking around the island all by myself in the middle of the night with bad guys <laughs> looking for my looking for my home, my family, you know, and I finally find them. We uh we did quite a few operations. What we did was man. Uh, around the island itself, you had smaller islands, and the Cubans and the PRA uh, before the invasion, they had cached weapons and ammunition on the smaller islands, and a lot of them actually fled to the smaller islands to hide. And what we did, we put our five-man uh, teams out there, LERP teams uh, in observation positions, LPOPs, um, waiting for these guys to come out in the boats to pick, you know, dig up the caches or whatever. And uh, we ended up, uh, my platoon ended up with. Uh, Two of our soldiers were the most decorated soldiers to come out of Grenada. Um, firefights, Bronze Star, Soldiers Medal, all kinds of cool shit was happening. You know, yeah, right. uh, we had a couple awesome. of guys get shot up in one of the in uh, one of the positions. But uh, so that's kind of like the the first time, if, if you want to call that, you know, going to combat. Uh, <laughs> Just walk around the like island, sitting on my ass in the jungle on the ground, having crabs crawling all over me all night long. You know, freaking. You know, it's like sitting on palm fronds all night. You know, when you're wet. yeah, yeah, yeah it hurts yeah. your ass, right? It's like little needles sticking in your butt all night long. You know, because <laughs> you can't move. Um, but anyways, that was my first time out out the gate, so to speak. Yep. Um, a rescue of Kurt Muse. Um, Somalia, Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down. I uh, did Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Then I did Iraq and uh, Afghanistan again. Yemen. Hey, Dale, just to go 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 back to uh, Granada for a second. What was the reason why you why you couldn't stay at the airfield? Yeah, good question. Because if some cherry lieutenant didn't want me at his freaking airfield. <laughs> Bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. You know, this stuff like that. Yeah, look, he's a young first lieutenant. You know, probably not much older than me. You know. He didn't want me hanging around bothering him, I guess. I don't know. You know, so, yeah, that's bloody wild. Yeah. <laughs> one of us really thought it through and talked about it. I was like, you know, you're asking me to go out there in the dark with the boogeyman. You know, maybe I should just stay here. I'm not hurting nothing. You know, I'm not going to eat your food or anything. You know, so, <laughs> we should have probably we should have probably worked that out. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of an adventurer, too. And I thought, whatever, I'll just go find my platoon. <laughs> so you, you were involved in uh, Operation Acid Gambit. Uh, now this one That's is the story name. of uh, Kurt Muse. You know he, you know, was a so-called American spy uh, working for the CIA. You know, there's so many different stories on the internet, and you know, I guess you probably know more. Uh, he was in a prison in um, Panama, which was uh, the Mo- Mo- Modelo? Modelo. Modelo. Yep, which Modelo. was the notorious prison in uh, Panama City, and obviously this was just before, obviously the Panama. Uh, Operation Just Cause kicked off. So you guys uh, obviously get this uh, order to go in and extract him, jump in a couple of helicopters, and you were the you were the breacher. So you were the you right. know the guy first guy on the on the on the top of the prison roof or doors, I guess, and blew them straight open. Yeah. So uh, so a little backstory on that. So <clears throat> Modelo Prison means model prison. So this was like the newest penitentiary the Panamanians built. You know, like the super max. You know. 
best okay. of the best. And so and it happened to be right next door to the Commandancia, the headquarters for the Panamanian Defense Forces, right, in Noriega, downtown um, in Panama. And uh, so, yeah, Kurt Muse was rolled up. Um, supposedly he was a businessman that belonged to a rotary club. You know, it's all bullshit. They caught him <laughs> doing a radio intercept. And uh, anyways, he ended up in the Modelo prison. Um, and there were a couple of other incidents that led up to the final invasion. Uh, lieutenant got shot. American lieutenant got shot at a, where at an intersection by the PDF and a couple other incidents like that. So basically, the Panamanian Defense Forces were getting a little aggressive with the American soldiers that were stationed there. And that prompted uh, basically a call to go in and remove Noriega. Right. So. Um, so this was December 20th was the actual um, the raid. And it was actually 0020 hours um, on December 20th. I went down there. My unit went down there three days prior. And what was weird is I had just graduated the Q course, just became a Green Beret, just got back to the unit. I was at the unit one day and we were out actually training for this live fire. And I got blown up, um, took oh, some wow. fragmentation in the back of my leg from a uh, from a grenade. And so. Now I'm, you know, I'm hobbling around. I got stitches, I got crutches, and I'm relegated to staff duty. I'm wearing a suit every day, you know, answering the phones and watching TV until I can get back on the mend. Well, one night I get a phone call from a JSOC, um, and they gave me the uh, the code words, basically, you know, alert your unit, blah, blah, blah. And I knew when they called me and what they said that this is game on. So I, yeah. I paged in my unit. We happened to be the ones on alert, uh, my squadron, <clears throat> and uh, – I remember the commander came in, my troop commander, and he walks into my office. He's looking at me, you know, and he goes like, hey, man, he goes, this is the Super Bowl. He goes, this is it. It's what we've been training for. He goes, and I felt like I need to come by here and just give you an opportunity to see if you want to go or not. He goes, I know you're hurt. I was going through a divorce and all kinds of crap, you know, and uh, I was in no condition to go down range, but I sat there and thought about it for like two seconds. And I'm like, the hell with that. The ex can have everything. Um I didn't train this hard just to sit on the desk and watch you guys on TV, you know? So yeah, I literally ripped my suit off, ran down the stairs, put my flight suit on. And two hours later, we were wheels up on our way down range uh, to Panama. And so I was the breacher. Um, so the first time I ever saw the target, rehearsed for the target, practice for the target was one of the real target. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and uh, so we had all kinds of intel, but yeah, um, it was a prison, three-story prison, and on the top you had an annex that was about 10 by 10 with a jail door on it. And CIA reporting at the time said, look, it's just a steel door, hardened steel door. That's what you're going to have to breach. Um, so I built the charges for that. And I remember when we were building explosives, um, you know, I'm sitting there making this charge. And I'm going, okay, steel door, you know, it needs this much explosives. It'll be configuration. And I started thinking about it. I was like, you know. There ain't going to be anybody on the other side, but bad guys. And I got to get, make sure I get into this thing. So more is better. I'm going to use the P factor P for plenty. Right. So I just <laughs> <laughs> right? We're gonna put a lot on this. We're getting in right. It's a nuclear weapon now. And thank God I did that because um, something happened later that I was like, Oh my God, man, had I gone through the original charge, we might not be getting in. So, so we end up, um, <clears throat> you know, so the lead up to this thing, um, we were supposed to actually execute earlier and then we were starting to get intel back that we've already been compromised. It wasn't we got compromised. It was some of the local American soldiers and a Marine getting on the phone. They knew with the op pending operation to call mommy, mom, I'm going to see you again. I'm so sorry. You know, and, you know come on, man. You're the broke OPSEC. You don't do that shit. Right. And of course, it got intercepted by another oh, country yeah, back in Noriega. And our observers are our snipers going, wait a minute, man. They're shoring everything up. They're they're, you know. 
they're showing up to defenses. Why? How do they know? And so we actually moved the hit time. Uh, actually, we only moved it 20 minutes. So originally it was supposed to be midnight. We moved it to 0020. And uh, so, you know, hell, we're going to go anyways, right? So um, the other issue we had was we went in with, uh, I believe it was a total of 15 helicopters, four MH6s, which are the little birds with the pods on the outside, the people pods, mm-hmm. right? Two operators sitting on the outside. And then we had four H6 helicopters, the, the gun birds. We had, I believe, four um, four um, H uh, Apaches and four um, Cobras and a two a Blackhawk uh, C2 birds, right? So, <clears throat> but uh, what we're going to do is land the little <laughs> birds, the four M- uh, MHs, were the ones that are going to land on the roof with the assault team. Um, and then the others were going to provide fire support and C2 from above. And um, so, you know, at the time, the little birds back then, you know, the little flying egg. Yeah. Um, at that time, the engines on those uh, helicopters were actually the same engines or motors they used for irrigation canal pumps, right? So it was farm yeah. equipment. <laughs> yeah, we're flying with farm equipment and freaking rotor blades, right? So, <laughs> so they weren't that powerful, you know? And, uh, and so to have four assaulters on there with all our kit and the pilots, some of these birds couldn't get off the deck. So what we had to do is um, we actually stripped some of the avionics out of the helicopters, um, two of the helicopters. We had to take one of the pilots out. So we only had one pilot for two of the four helicopters. Um, and then all the operators, same thing. We basically stripped down to the bare minimum gear that we could, you know, that we needed. No water. Um, I was the lightest. Um, I had the lightest amount of equipment. I was a lightest operator. I weighed 164 pounds. Um, and then my equipment was 70 pounds lightest and i was the breacher everybody else was heavier than me so just think about that man just to go do an assault so um we landed and uh we landed two by twos i got off on the first helicopter my job was to run up start placing the breaching charges prepping it when i run up to the door um it wasn't just a steel door as reported by the cia it was a steel door but in front of it about six inches was a hardened jail door yeah jail type door right so um, of course, you got to remember, this is, you know, I always get these morons that come out and go, all you had to do is put, you know, two IV bags, a couple of wraps of death cord. That takes out a steel door. No, you idiot. Um, look, I'm, I've been <laughs> doing explosives for 35 years. OK, I, it doesn't work like that. So um, what I ended up, uh, this is where the P factor came to play. It's like, thank God I got extra freaking ass in this charge. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> we may not be going in there and Muse might be a dead man. So I placed the charge. Um and all kinds of weird shenanigans started to happen. So what I didn't do is my team built my firing system, right? Because it's team effort. I'm the breacher. I oversee everything. They built a firing system. And it turns out the tail and attachment point was a little longer than it should have been. And so I had excess hanging off it. So after I do all this stuff, um, things started going sideways. So one of the things that happened was because now we're in an intense firefight. <clears throat> we're taking, we got, we're surrounded by high rise buildings. Um, and it's occupied by the Panamanian Defense Force. They're shooting down at us, plunging fire. We got guards from the towers below us shooting up at us. We got people from the commandancy shooting across at us. You know, we're, we've got, you know it's a two-way firefighting going every direction. And uh, a lot of noise. Uh, all the power went out. I mean, completely blacked out at the same time. So it was black, noisy, you know, chaotic. And uh, I remember... <clears throat> Basically, something went wrong with my firing system because of the humidity. Some tape came off um, and I'm pulling my firing system and something's I'm not sure it's 
it's ignited. I'm not sure it's working, right? And I got an eight-second fuse on it. And I'm thinking, I just spent four seconds here trying to figure out, is this thing even burning? <laughs> you know? And so, and then I thought, it's got to be burning because I know I pulled it hard enough. I'm pretty sure I pulled the safeties out. And uh, anyway, so I, in my panic, I let go of the, the firing system thinking the whole thing's burning. So I don't blow myself up. And I go to run, run off and this damn excess tail caught my boot, right? And as I could see out of the corner of my eye, even though it was dark, uh, I could see the charge falling off the door because it was a, a oh. linear and very rigid charge, right? Like a tree. Yeah. And it was yeah. falling off behind me like a pole. You know, it was almost like in slow motion, like timber. You know, I could see this thing fall and it lands right in front of the salt tank. And uh, I was like, oh, shit. And uh, the commander was screaming, you know, and my team started telling him to fix it, fix it, team. You know, my wife, Steve's going to do his, his charge. is my charge, right? And I'm counting in my head, 1,000, 2,000. Okay, I just counted 4,000. This thing's not going to go. And so I run back out there and hail of bullets. I grab it again, run back to the door, slap it on there. And I go, okay, cops, like, buy the numbers, buy the numbers, right? And I do it everything one more time, slowly, and boom, this time it fires. Yeah. Um, and we always dual prime. We use two systems, right, as a backup. Well, one of them failed. And luckily, the other one worked. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons for it. Environmental factors, humidity, blah, blah, blah. Tape coming off. Um, you know, if it could go wrong, it was happening wrong. going to go wrong that night of all times. But finally, it works. I run in my haste. Instead of running around the, the building like I'm supposed to, getting in, ch- in my chalk water behind my team, I run around on the exposed side, exposing myself to gunfire, just trying to get the hell out of Dodge so I'm blowing myself up, you know. And I run around the building, get to the other side, charge goes off. And that charge literally blew both those doors off at the same time. <laughs> they flew, they flew perfectly to the other to the other side of the wall, slid down, stacked out of the way perfectly. I mean, you could have moved it better than that. <laughs> I was pretty proud. I got pictures of the of the frame still too, but we got in and uh, and then we executed the mission from there. Um, ended up taking out like the interrogator. Um, we shot up a lot of um, security uh, guards. Um, the so when they knew we were coming, the prison already had, I think, 65 um, prison guards there. And they already sandbagged the bottom floor. They were expecting a ground assault. Um, and then they reinforced it with another 65 Panamanian Defense Forces soldiers. So you had about 130 uh, shooters in there. And uh, they were all expecting a ground fight. And we, we you know, we came in over the top, came down. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we showed them, had them in their ass of what we did. Um, but anyways, we pulled it off, got off. And then the bird that had the um we call the precious cargo Kurt Muse on it. It crashed it's shot it. down coming off the roof. Yeah. Right? Wow. So remember these birds are so heavy they have to get a running start. They can't just lift up and fly away. They got to basically pick up and kind of run forward and get a little forward momentum to start getting some lift. In this case with Kurt Muse, the guy literally got the helicopter just up high enough that he could dive off the roof, right? And oh. get some speed yeah. to, to get lift and get back up. And when he dived off the roof it took all kinds of gunfire, you know, from the ground floor because it was barricaded and uh, they hammered a helicopter. So it, it kind of went down, went up and it went down to down an alleyway, hit some power lines and crashed into an alleyway. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so there's actually pictures out there on the internet of that. So on that helicopter was my assistant team leader. So um, the only guy that didn't get hurt in that crash was the precious cargo and the reason why he didn't get hurt. They put a helmet on and put all kinds of body armor on him and they put him in the middle. Right. Oh, so so he's now the helicopter is even heavier, right? Because we added a body on there. Right. So that's probably why it had to dive off the roof like that. And uh, he's the only guy that came out seeing unscathed, right? Everybody else got pretty messed up. One of my guys, one of my friends 
he's actually dead now, uh, unfortunately, but uh, we're always tied in to the people pods, right? So if you fall off the helicopter, at least you're tied in, you don't fall at your death. Well, in this case, the helicopter crashes, it bounces. Um, James gets knocked off the pod. He swings underneath the skin skids because he's still attached to it. Wow. And his feet go under those skids and it takes his toes off on one, on oh. one leg. Um, and then the whole thing lands kind of sideways. On the other side, two guys, the two operators over there, both got uh, got gunshot wounds uh, through the legs and the chest. Um, and then on the same side with uh, Mike, the assistant team leader, he's laying on the ground, kind of stunned. Um, the pilots are knocked out in the front seat. And then Kurt Muse kind of gets out and is like, damn, everybody's dead. And he goes and grabs my assistant team leader's 45. He picks up. He's going to like, <laughs> this is the Alamo for him, the last stand. because yeah. He's on his own, right? And he goes to pick up the weapon and he starts to stand up. And because the helicopter's sitting sideways, the rotors are still spinning. Um, he was about to stand up into the rotor blade, oh. right? It's a little bird. And uh, my, my team leader um, happened to come to at the same time, saw that, reached up, jumped up, reached up and grabbed Kurt, pulls him down. And his name's Tom. Tom took the rotor strike to his head. He had on a protect helmet, literally shaved it off. I just chopped it off his head, right? Knocked him the hell out. Wow. <laughs> and so he's now, he's unconscious as well. So everybody's out cold except Kurt Muse, you know, and um, my bird was supposed to be the last helicopter to make it back to uh, Howard Air Force, uh, airfield, um, Air Force Base. And uh, so we get back and my helicopter's first helicopter back. Oh, no idea. We came off the, yeah, we come off the roof, right? Um, so we also had the 197th Infantry, uh, mechanized infantry. They had come in and set up blocking positions around the commandancy of the prison, around two blocks. They, they coordinated off. And it just happens because it was Christmas. All the infantry guys went back to the U.S. for Christmas. So you guess who's driving these APCs? Cooks, clerks, and jerks, man. <laughs> <laughs> Non-combat types are driving the vehicles and man the machine guns, oh, the 50 no. calibers. And so they're pretty much shooting at everything that moves. And have you ever seen what a 50 caliber tracer looks like when it's coming at you? It looks like a flaming base uh, basketball. And we got flaming basketballs coming up and lit, lit, lazing, you know, raising my leg up and shit. And I'm like, holy cow, man, it was just scary. <laughs> I wasn't scared until after we left the target, you know. After we left the target, I was like, ooh, it gave me the goosebumps, you know, to see all this, you know, basketballs going everywhere and all the <laughs> carnage and stuff. And we get back to the airfield, we land, and we're the only ones there. And I'm like, this don't seem right. There's like 15 helicopters. Why are, we're supposed to be 15th and we're actually number one. And so my team leader is like, you know, stand fast. And he walks over to what's called a JMAL, which is a, a field medical uh, unit, right? And they had it all set up for triage because they were actually expecting a lot of casualties. So you got all these doctors and nurses and surgeons standing out there, you know, watching us, arms crossed, you know, big, like a big parade. And uh, my team leader runs over there. I can see him, blah, 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 blah. He comes running back. And he's like, okay, boys. He goes, refresh your magazines, put new magazine. We're going back in, you know, the uh, precious cargo got shot down. I thought, Oh shit, man. What? We got to go back into that. We, that was the hornet's nest. We're going back. What? <laughs> so we're like, okay, you load and lock and load and stuff and get back in the helicopters. Engines are spinning up. And then we see the next helicopter coming in and then another helicopter coming in and another one coming in. And then we were told to stand down because, um, one of the ground use APCs actually had a couple of our Delta guys in it. Um, in fact, the guy I mentioned earlier with the two broken legs that we yep. selection was on the one of those APCs right. and he brought uh, APC in. they recovered everybody, got them in the back and got them out, um, got them off the target. So, um, there was no need for us to go back in there. So, so that was, uh, that was the prison on um, the rescue of Merce, uh, Kurt Muse. And, um, 
you know, he wrote the book Six Minutes to Freedom. And I tell you what, it was um, it was a great experience because coming in, we had we had already had snipers on the ground in the woodline watching everything, and they're reporting back to us, going, "Yeah, look, they know you're coming. They're showing up the corners. They're, at, they're putting in machine gun um, positions, bringing in more vehicles. They're they're basically they're hardening everything, and uh, <clears throat> and then so when they the the Panamanian defense forces were doing that, all the locals, all the civilians, were like, oh, something's going to happen tonight. So they all start bringing their lawn chairs and shit out and their music. You're joking. It's like the parade, man. It's like they're waiting for the Mardi Gras parade. It's like there's millions of people all lined up and down the road, you know, drinking beer, playing football, you know, That's playing wild. music, sitting in lawn chairs. Like, yeah, this is going to be fun. Like, what? You know, and so, so we, and we're getting all this reporting. Like, holy shit, right? So we fly in. And uh, I remember when we left, we flew across the, um, canal uh along the uh, bridge of americas and then we came over what was called ancon hill which was a saddle and two hilltops and when we came through that saddle we were flying low maybe 30 40 feet off the deck as soon as we came over that you could see all of panama city you could see the prison the commandancia and uh we come in nice kind of uh, it would have been cool to see that like in a movie but we're all coming in nice and slow in formation and uh probably within after we got about within 30 seconds of the objective our snipers started engaging um and they're dropping people like flies and now people are scattering like you know i wrote cockroaches in my book somebody didn't like that for some reason but i don't <laughs> call them cockroaches i just said they were scattering like cockroaches but there were people running <laughs> everywhere man and they were intermixed with pdf uh the dignitary battalion which is their militia they were all wearing civilian clothes as well and so, you know, and we're at a really slow hover about 30 feet off the deck because of the weight. You know, we can't just mm. come flying in and flare and sit down. It's like we got to kind of sink it in or nice and slow. So by flying like really slow, and I mean like 10, 15, 20 miles an hour, you know, I'm looking down. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to discriminate between good guys and bad guys that are shooting at us. You know, we're trying to it's like trying to shoot fish in the bowl, you know, and uh, and I remember, man, we got right over the roof and. We're kind of at a slow hover, and I looked down, and on the street was um, were probably about five or six women. Some of them were holding little little babies, and they were all clustered together. They were moving across the street, and in the middle was a, a we call him Dig Bat, Dig Dignitary Battalion uh, militia guy, and uh, he was in the middle. He had short AK forty eight uh, forty seven, had oriented upward towards us, but he was surrounded by the women really tight. Oh yeah, and oh. Uh, I saw him. And I, I can still describe him today. He was probably about five foot eight. He was wearing a white guayabara, blue jeans. Uh, he had AK-47S, a little bit of long black hair. I, was st- I would still remember the detail of this guy because I was just dialed in on him. And uh, he hadn't mounted the weapon in his shoulder yet, but he had it oriented upward. He was looking up and he's trying to move backwards with these girls. And they were trying to get across the street. There was a cemetery and there was a gate there to go through. It was walled in in the entry gate. And so I thought, okay, if I take a shot, which is going to be hard because we're sinking and they're moving, you know, that's a, that's a, that's going to be a tough shot, you know, and it's probably maybe a 40 meter, 35, 40 meter shot, yep. you know, straight line. And I could have easily put it, you know, through and through to one of the heads and popped one of the kids or one of the women, you know, it, it was, it was a tough shot to take. It was less than a 10% shot. Yeah. And uh, I felt like, okay, he's, he's, he doesn't have the weapon mounted yet. He looks like he's just trying to get to the other side. And so I kind of said, let's just see what happens. So as we're sinking, I'm watching, watching, watching. They go through the um, the entryway, and I kind of, my spider sense has said, he's going to peel out. 
And I don't know. I was, it was a lucky guess because all the women went in and they banked left and he button hooked around to the right. And I kind of anticipated that and he popped up over the wall. Now he's going to take a set shot. And I was already waiting for him, you know, I can <sighs> let the air out of that guy. Um, and that's when we landed. <laughs> and then that's when everything else just started picking up, you know, all the, all the craziness, man. Yeah. Um, oh, and there was one more part of the story <laughs> that, that I left out. So awesome. when we're in the building, so we're down on the second floor now, third floor. And uh, it's pitch black, you know, it's chaotic, man. Um, you know, we're, we're, gu- we're gunning it out with the guys in the towers and in the, in the, in the uh, courtyard, cost at the commandancia. And, and we're kind of stacked up in the stairs waiting for the helicopters to come back in so we can evacuate. And so I'm kind of like laying down on a balcony and I'm, I'm engaging, you know, targets in the, in the courtyard and at the barbershop, you know, guy trying to get a haircut. No, <laughs> they were in a, you know, had a barbershop over there and all this stuff. And so I'm over there shooting and carrying on and, and I'm waiting for somebody to tell me, okay, pick it up. Let's go. We're out of here, you know? And, but it was pitch black on top of that. So I'm landing, I'm shooting away. I'm having fun, you know, and I heard the helicopters landing. I heard some taking off and then more hit landing and, and some time passed by and I'm thinking, you know, when are we going to get out of here? And, and then I start thinking it's kind of quiet behind me, even though there's a lot of gunfire, I don't hear like any scuffling behind me. So I remember reaching back with my non-firing hand to see if I can find one of my teammates, hit him in the leg or something. And I'm not feeling nothing. So I start sweeping around my legs a little bit longer and I'm not feeling nobody. And it occurred to me, there's nobody behind me. I'm by myself in this freaking building. Right. They left. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, they had already gone up to the top and getting on the helicopters and they forgot about me. They actually didn't see me because it was dark and I'm laying on mm. the ground. And, uh, and so about the same time I heard the Panamanians coming up the stairs, I could hear them stand on, you know, crushing glass and things like that. And they're blah, blah, blah. They're talking and shit. And they're working their way up the stairs to come and engage us from the back. And man, I swear to God, I was like, Holy shit. I got left behind. And I might become either a POW in an orange jumpsuit or I'm going to be dead, you know, probably going to be dead because I'm not going to get captured. But uh, so I run up the stairs, man, like a scalded dog, man. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I'm, you know, I'm feeling my way up the walls and stuff, you know, and I bust out the door and look and there's a helicopter still sitting. Oh, my God, they got to run over to it. And somebody sitting in my seat. I'm like, hey, 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 that's my seat, you know, because <laughs> we had designated seats. And this guy fucked up. He went to the wrong seat. He's sitting in my seat, you know. And we're having this little conversation. And I'm like, you ain't getting out of here without me, you know. I, said, I don't care. I've got to overload this helicopter, you know. And finally, he figured out, oh, yeah, he's supposed to be on the other seat and gets up and leaves. And I'm happy now because I get to go home, too, right? So I get on my helicopter and take off. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a good mission, man. Um, you know, we... Um, we took, we didn't, nobody got killed on our, on our side. We had, you know, some wounded, some casualties, lost some helicopters, but uh, other than that, it was a success. And, uh, you know, it's pretty badass when you can go into a hardened target, man, it's reinforced guys are waiting for you, you know, and you still overrun them, you know, with a small, we had 23 guys, Yeah. 23, that was, you know, and we went in there and that wasn't all assaulters. Uh, some of those guys were snipers on the roof. So we put gun positions on the roof with snipers, right. To provide a, uh, you know, overwatch and suppressive fire across the commandancia, across the courtyard in the prison. Um, I think it was kind of cool, too, on the way in. So I always carried a car 15 with an M203 grenade launcher attached to it and an 8.2000. And my team leader is sitting next to me. Um, and he's like, and he's carrying a regular car 15 with M203, but he's going to be in a security position on the roof. And I'm actually going to go in. And at the last minute on the helicopters goes, hey, man, 
since you're going downstairs, why don't you take this weapon? Let me have your weapon and your M203 grenade line, your grenades, since I'm on the roof. It seemed like a good idea, but it just seemed like a dumb idea that we waited till the last second to sort this out. <laughs> we do this hangar, but now we're on a helicopter taking our shit off. Yeah, you take this, I'll take that, do, 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 you know? But the cool thing is, like with aim points, um, the weapons, the the sights are sighted yeah. to the bore yeah. of the weapon, right? So it doesn't matter. Wherever I put that dot, it's going to hit it's it. Gonna hit, that, yep. you know, it's not zeroed to me. So that's why it worked. You know, I had no problem switching weapons with him. He actually got the first kill with my M203. Um, <laughs> he took out one of the guys in the uh, in the tower at about 30 meters, man, freaking point blank in the chest. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that was uh, Modelo Prison. And then... Uh, you know, and then as time went on, we did a lot of other stuff that, uh, you know, that a lot of Americans don't want, don't know about, probably shouldn't know about. But then we've, you know, the other ones that was, uh, that all, the whole world knows about was Mogadishu, Black Hawk Down. Yeah. Um, did that. And then we ended up in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you know, and I've, I've done them all. Iraq, Afghanistan. The only one I have not been to was uh, Bosnia. I didn't go to that one. Right? Yeah. Because I was actually transitioning out in my retirement when that went down. And that was more of an air war than anything else. Outside of that, I've been in every combat campaign um, that the U.S. government has been in since 1983 uh, to the present. So yeah. how, how many direct action missions do you reckon you've done? Um, I'm going to say over 500. You know, I, I never really counted them. Yeah. But one, one of my commander, one of my Afghan commanders, uh, I was his advisor. And uh, we, we just met in Las Vegas a year and a half ago. He finally was able to bring his family over. Thank God. Otherwise he'd be dead. But uh, this guy had over 1500 operations, man. I'm thinking, damn, you know, in the year and a half I was with him, we did quite a few too. So, you know, in all my lifetime, when I try to add it all up, I'm thinking I probably did at least 500 missions. And and out of that 500, how hostile were they? Those 500, you know, ish, like every, every single one was a gunfight. No, not, no, not everyone's a gunfight. You know, um, a lot of times there were, um, we call it CTRs, close target reconnaissance, where I actually went out by myself, you know, and drove right up onto the objectives, you know, like in, in Tikrit and Baghdad, you know, PID and freaking targets and go back and bring the salt force in. Um, then I've done, you know, um, surveillance missions, reconnaissance missions, um, direct action missions, hostage rescue missions. Um, not, you know, sometimes it's a dry hole. Yep. Sometimes it's not, you know, so, um, you know, think if I imagine if they were all freaking, if I had a if I had a you know a firefight in every one of them, I probably wouldn't be here today, man. And it actually has kind of prompted me to to uh, resign um, from OGA. I had an epiphany one night, and uh, it's in my it's in my book. In fact, American Badass, I talk about it, my epiphany. I call it, but as towards I was forty seven, forty eight at the time, and uh, I've got over nine and a half years now in Afghanistan. And uh, you know, you, you've been in Afghanistan a lot when you're in the the, the armored bus going from the airfield downtown to this, you know, the U S embassy CIA headquarters and this truck stop with the bus stops at an intersection. And you see a guy waving at you and asking, <laughs> <laughs> and he knows you and, he knows you, and your bus like, Whoa, you know, it's one of the, it's the janitor at one of the other bases I've been at, you know, and yeah. he recognizes me. Uh, you know, you've been there a lot when you roll a guy up and go, Hey, I remember you remember you caught me the last time doing this, you know, like, you son of a bitch, man, you know? And uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time over there. And uh, so you but, spent uh, nine years, nine years title in Afghanistan. Well, I, I spent nine and a half years with OGA and I would um, doing the math. I spent about nine months out of every year downrange, um, oh, somewhere downrange, you know, um, 
And Jeez. if I wasn't overseas, I was working in the States at one of our sites that nobody knows about. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Classified as well. But uh, I've been away from my family for over nine months out of the year. Um, so I still can't figure out why my wife left me, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Uh, we've got two final questions. That first question is, you know, you've pretty much given us a full motivational speak throughout the whole bloody podcast <laughs> already, which has been super cool. But, mate, what advice can you give to people to complete their goals and, you know, whatever dream they set, just get it. You, you, you've done everything you can possibly do. Movies, Delta Force, Airborne. Just the operations. You've been OGA, operations, like, and you know. You know, it took a long time for me to – to figure it all out. So I actually discovered something when I was 15 years old, growing up in Germany, um, something happened to me and I'll give you a quick, I'll give you the really the fastest story I can give you on this. So I was playing baseball, youth league baseball. I was 15. Uh, you know, that was kind of the pastime for the Americans there was youth sports, baseball, basketball, football. So I played on this baseball team um, and we were playing another team. And anyways, make a long story short, I always played in the left field. If I even got to play, usually I was left out because I sucked at baseball. But <laughs> so anyways, on this particular day, my coach asked me to play third base. Um, and I was scared to death playing third base, right? I had all these phobias about getting hit in the face with a line drive, blah, blah, blah. And so on that particular game, I made all these mistakes. I had parents yelling at me, screaming at me, you know, and I'm 15 years old and I'm just totally humiliated, terrified, mortified. And our catcher got hurt was out for the season. So when the game was over, I remember hiding in the dugout, waiting until all, everybody left the field before I came out. Cause was, you know, I was ashamed of my performance and everything else. I feel really bad. Next day I had practiced my coach. He said, Oh, Hey, I want you to play catcher. And I thought you got to be kidding me. Right. You saw what I didn't do in third base. I can't, I can't even play left field. They put me in left field because I can't hurt nothing out there. I played with the <laughs> butterflies and pull grass, you know, and throw it in the air, you know, and now and then a ball will come by or something, you know, and, but so I said, you know, catcher, you know, and I, but I'm the guy that never says no, sir. I'm like, yes, sir. Three bags full. Put me in coach, you know, and uh, I'm that guy, man. You know, you tell me to do it and I'll do it. So I had about 30 minutes to practice and I sucked. Right. Everybody's giving me information. Do this. Don't do that. This is coming out. Blah, blah, blah. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to play the same team. And so it was dark and I had 30 minutes of practice. Maybe if you want to call it practice, I'm walking home going, man, what did I just sign up for? And, uh, then I started scheming. I'm like, well, what if I just don't show up tomorrow? I'll have to get another catcher, right? <laughs> so and I thought, no, I can't do that either, right? It's like, you know, you know. So I go home and uh, I lay down really early, like seven o'clock at night. I just go to bed early and I and uh, I put my headphones on. You know, we all had boom boxes back then. And, uh, and I always laugh because I tell everybody, you know, my favorite song at the time was Disco Daz by the Bar Case. <laughs> Daz, Daz, Disco Daz, you know. And, uh, and I put my headphones on in, in my, you know, my little Iowa boom box. And I laid in bed all night. And I sat there and visualized playing baseball. I visualized playing catcher. And I, I thought about every possible contingency, every play. And I created a solution in my mind. I actually felt it like it was really happening and started doing it, right? Um, so I literally played that baseball game, the next day's baseball game, in my head probably 10 times that night before we went out there. I had everything, thought of every possible scenario. And so the next morning, I, it's about 7 o'clock in the morning. I remember walking to the field about 15 minutes. And uh, kind of cool spring morning in Germany. The grass was really wet. The clover leaves, you know, the tips of my cleats were wet, you know. I get there, and I'm very calm, man unusually calm. I'm not amped up, not scared, not overexcited. I'm just kind of whoo, level. And uh, coach says, comp put on your catcher's gear, start warming up with the pitcher. So I do. And, and then here comes the parents. 
hey, coach, what the hell? What the hell? TikTok, blah, 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 blah. You know, here we go, man. I was like, what the freak, man? And uh, and my coach, man, you know, he showed me leadership for the first time. Um, first time I really saw it, man. He came out and he basically put all the parents in check. Go, hey, I'm the coach. I decide who plays, when to play, how to play, how long they play, blah, blah, blah. If you want to do my job, you're more than welcome to do it. Otherwise, shut the F up and get out there and support your kids, right? And all the parents are like, okay, whatever, right? And I'm like, wow, did my coach just say that? He's got my back, right? So, so we go, we play the game, make a long story short, everything I imagined happened. All the double plays and triple plays I imagined doing by myself, I did them. I was a one-man baseball team. I made zero <laughs> errors. Not a ball got – if I meant I had to sacrifice my face to stop it, that's what I was doing. Right? It was not going behind me, right? And um, when it was all over, um, I was awarded the game ball as the most viable player in the game. Wow. Um, and I played catcher from that day on. Right. So literally from overnight, I went from zero to hero. And what I did, I did not know what had a name. I didn't know it was a thing um, until later on in life. There's some other stories that support this. When I went to Delta, there's a reason I was the youngest guy to ever make it to Delta. Um, and so it has to do with this phenomena. And I started researching it and realized it actually has a name. Um, it's a thing. It's science. It's all physics based. Right. So I will say the first thing to everybody out there listening Success is based on science. It's based on physics. It has nothing to do with willpower or philosophy. Even Albert Einstein has said that. Many of the great physicists have said that. Okay. The reality is this. Everything we do in life is based on energy frequency. Okay. And uh, if you can understand that and you can harness that energy, the energy we have within, the energy you have without, um, then you can succeed at everything you do. So all my success in life. It's not because I'm Superman. Um, I was a 164 pound runt. Um, you know, I, my my arms were like little noodles. Um, you know, I didn't have a super education. Um, you know, I'm not super smart either. Uh, I'm an average. I was an average kid. And uh, but because I learned something that day on that baseball field, it changed the way I think for the rest of my life. And because of that, all my successes have to do with this mindset. All right. And I'm like this. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Hands down. Right. I've achieved a lot. I mean, you saw my my resume. I mean, I've done anything. I've been a professional athlete, a competitive bodybuilder, professional boxer. I got a doctorate, master's. You know, I got I can go on and on and on. Um, and it's all verifiable. It, you know, it's, I, in fact, I post all my certificates, my DD-214s. Everything's on the Internet to validate it all. Um, so it's not like I'm making making it up. And it's not because I worked hard. Um, that's the other myth. You know, if you work hard, you know, or if you work smart, you know, you'll be successful. Actually, it's not. Um, you know, I did work hard at times. Um, I guess you'd call it working hard, you know, going through selection. It took physical effort to get through it. Um, working smart. Yeah, that's a piece of it. But that wasn't really the the reason I was successful. I will tell you this. If you want to be successful, you have to imagine the outcome. Like it's actually happening right now. You've got to live it, feel it, experience like you, you're really doing it. Um, and that takes meditation a little bit, um, but it takes intense concentration because eventually what's going to happen is, like I mentioned earlier in selection, you know, I, I was stuck in the mud. My legs didn't want to work anymore. Body was mm. broke. Head was still functioning, but the, the body was broke. But the head had to tell the body, I don't care if you're broke, you know, get your ass out of the mud and keep going. Um, and the reason I was able to keep going is because. I had a vision. I could see the finish line yeah. and I knew I had to get over it. And there's only one way I'm going to get there. Nobody's going to come and get me. Nobody's going to carry me there. And only me, I'm, I'm going to get myself across that finish line. So um, success is a function of vision. 
Yeah. Okay. People yeah. use that term all the time. You know, you just got to visualize, but they don't tell you the science. This is what I do. I, I, in my performance coaching, I teach the science. I go into your nerve nervous system. I go into, I talk about things like uh, firing and wire your, your, the neural pathways and myelination. And how does that all affect performance, personal performance. And then I talk about professional future performance. It's a term called future pacing. How do you create the life that you want down the road outside the body? And it's the same function. It's a function of energy. Um, and those are really it. Those are the keys. I mean, so, you know, those that want to be successful out there, um, if you want to be the one percenter, because that's one percent lives the, 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 the dream life. Uh, if you want to be a one percenter and not the 99 percenters, um, you've got to understand that nothing's easy because if it's easy, everybody would, would do it Two, You never give up no matter how many times you get beat down. Um, you stay the course, imagine that, you know, imagine the outcome and then you learn from your mistakes. Mistakes are learning, right? Failure is learning. That's the other thing. Embrace it. Right. Everybody's afraid to, to make a mistake. Um, but in fact, if you're making mistakes, you're learning. Eventually what's going to happen, you're going to make so many mistakes. You learned everything. You can only you can only succeed now. <laughs> so it's just how fast of a learner are you, you know? And that's kind of how I look at it, man. So I'm never put off by how challenging something might be. Yeah, true. And now uh, the final question is: What's planned for the future? Bali, Philippines. Yeah, so, yeah, a lot of th- a lot of things. Um, so where do I start, man? So I'm writing five more books. Jesus, um, five. Oh, yeah, five. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got some really cool stories besides Yemen. Um, so the, I mentioned earlier, a production company surrounded me. We started making a lot of our own movies, mm-hmm. um, particularly zombie movies, right? Because okay. everybody's in the zombies, right? And oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. zombies and nobody calls you a racist or anything. So it's good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, we're equal opportunity killers now. Killer. If you're a zombie, it's good. Right? It doesn't matter what color you are. But uh, so we started killing you know, zombies on TV, made a bunch of movies. And I just got uh, notified that one one or two of them are completely edited and uh, they're waiting to finish a couple more. And then when they come out, they'll probably come out on something like Netflix or something like that. Um, yeah, I'll cool. announce it when that happens. Uh, and you get to see yours truly freaking <laughs> taking it to the bad guys again and turning yeah. it into a bad guy. So I get to do, do it all. So I have a few coming out, but I'm, I'm really, honestly, I'm not, um, I mean, I'll do it for these guys because we're all like-minded. They're conservatives, you know, and that's why we're building zombie movies and stuff. But yeah, uh, I'm not a Hollywood guy. That's I realize that's not uh, that's not who I am. My my passion is my passion is one is the security world what I'm doing now, and my really my greatest passion is performance coaching. Um, I love coaching. I got I've got a list right here about forty potential clients right now that just contacted me. You know for coaching, I can't take about five or seven, but uh, I love you know being able to get on Zoom calls like this you know, for hours at a time with each client and, and help them be the best version of themselves, you know? And, uh, and that's what I do. I can do that from right here, this chair, anywhere I'm around the world. And I can do this when I'm 120 years old in a wheelchair, as long as I got internet, you know, <laughs> business, you know? And so that's what I really enjoy. Um, but I do like the action stuff as well. You know, I still go out and I teach firearms courses. I still train law enforcement in the United States. Um, you know, I, I'm actually running a course in July, mid-July through uh, middle of September, 60 days here in Panama City Beach, Florida. Um, I'll be putting the uh, the advertisement out here soon, but uh, literally 60 days with Joe Teddy, Dual Survival. Yeah, um, yeah. My business partner. And uh, we're going to basically teach, we're going to teach you to be Jason Bourne. 
we're teaching everything from high speed and technical driving to combat marksmanship to street craft to making improvised detection devices, lock picking, explosives, working Jeez. with explosives, canines, over the horizon <laughs> infiltration over the ocean, riverine operations, you know, rubbing sticks together, making fire. <laughs> we're doing it all, man. Jesus Christ is Jason Bourne. That'll <laughs> <laughs> be fun, man. That's awesome. But that's, you know, we do that stuff. And uh, look, that's not even work, man. That's just fun shit. You yeah. Know? I get to go out and get paid for it, too. So, yeah, shit, yeah. Um, I'm working on some other things. I'm, I have to be careful what I say. It's probably not so much of a factor in your country, but uh, I'll probably be running for political office. Oh, that's hectic. Already, that's already in the tea leaves, man. It's already, it's, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, okay. There's legal reasons I have to be careful what I say until I actually fill out the paperwork in June. But uh, so it's one of it wasn't an aspiration, but I was approached and asked. Um, 2020. And I said, you know who I am, right? I mean, Two. I mean, listen to my listen to my toilet mouth, man. You know, <laughs> I'm not a politician, you know, and uh, that's that's exactly why we want you. And I go, I like that. That's why I like Trump. He wasn't a politician either. Yeah. And uh, I don't mind hurting feelings and crushing nuts. Um, <laughs> it's, it's time, you know, and uh, I'm ready. I'm ready to fight for, you know, the American way of life, not the new American way of life, because it's not the American way of life. Um, yeah. This is a total disgrace, you know. Um, and I got no problem getting on here and, and talking about this so-called, I don't even call my, he's not my president, but uh, this administration and the shit show that we're watching go down the, around the world. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Um, we say from here, it's embarrassing. Yeah. It's just yeah, as bad it, as it is. Everybody says, everybody says, even the Indonesians are laughing, you know, it's like, <laughs> this is what happened, man. You know, we went from being right on the top to pretty much on the bottom. Uh, one election that was, as far as I'm concerned, was stolen. Um but um, and I, you know what? I hardly ever bump into anybody that says they admitted to voting for Biden. I'm like you're a Democrat, no, no, I didn't vote for Biden. You know, nobody wants to admit it anymore. <laughs> exactly. You know? Oh yeah, because actually, probably they didn't vote for him because it was stolen. But yeah. you know, but I'm very embarrassed for my country. I'm ashamed of it. I have no problem saying that. Um, I, I call it the way I see it. You know, and uh, it's not because of anything me and my kind did. Um, it's what the other kind did, you know, and there's what I call Americans and there's what I call pseudo Americans. You know, mm. there's people that are just here that want all the benefits. Um, you know, they don't want to fight for their country. They want everything for free, you know, on the backs of those of us that uh, are willing to make the sacrifice and uh, still believe in, you know, the traditional American way, the U S not constitution, you know, there's a reason for all that that's all in place. And uh, I remember history, um, I remember why we became America and we're not still part of England. Um, apparently a lot of people have forgotten that, you know, or they never were taught that. So here we are. You guys are kind of in the same boat. You guys are convicts. You know. Yep. <laughs> British convicts. The outcasts yeah. from Britain. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> the outlaws, really. Yeah. Mate, um, this podcast has been super insightful. You've given us so much insight onto your, you know, your you know, military life. Military well. life. And massive. Yeah. You know, your private life, especially within the security world, you've got just a wealth of experience. Like you can't, you can't fit your, your life into two hours. Like it's just, uh, you probably need, you need those five, five you, books, probably yeah. need, you probably need more books, I reckon. But um, yeah. definitely, um, how can people get in contact with you? They head to your Instagram, which is yeah, so official American badass. Um, official American badass, uh, Dale Comstock Instagram. Uh, I've got my own website, dealcomstock.com. Not too hard to follow that one. Yep. Of course, I got some of all the other 
you know, social media sites like Facebook. I'm, I'm hard. I'm really getting away from Facebook about weaning myself off of that thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but I'm, I'm moving more towards, even though Instagram is affiliated with Facebook, um, I can still do some business on there, but I'm kind of shifting over to rumble, getting away. Actually, YouTube just took down my podcast yesterday. I did for a guy, um, took it down, really? fucking violating, you know, their freaking policies, right? Whatever the hell was, <laughs> because I basically, Gave my opinion on abortions, you know, and uh, that's hectic, <laughs> you know. So, you know, it is what it is, man. I don't, you know, I'm I'll tell you right now, I am not in favor of abortions, man. You know, those are little human beings, man, yeah. and uh, you know, separate DNA, two different bodies, uh, you know, together. And I have my opinion on it, and uh, the, they don't like that here in this country. Uh, the left controls everything, and they shut that down real fast, yeah, so, which is weird because that's that, that's the first amendment, isn't it? Is freedom of speech. It has gone, man. They're taking yeah. that from us, you know. They can if they can take away your your speech, they can take a, they can control your thoughts. Yeah. That's what they're trying to do, you know. Um, they're saying, yeah, you can think what you want, but you just can't say it. Yeah. So what's the point of you know? It, it, it's all you know. How it makes no. It, it makes sense. We're at a war. We're in a, we're in a cultural war, and you know we're we're in the midst of a world war. It just hasn't gone full blown yet, man. Hopefully, it doesn't go nuclear. But uh, uh, we're at the precipice of. Fucking! I mean, today I was reading. I think our uh, inflation rate's eight point eight point five percent now. Holy cow, man! I, we feel it, man. The gas pumps, the grocery yeah, stores. Yeah, we're the same here in Australia. You know? Yeah, our, our fuel's gone to like two dollars twenty a liter. Yeah, which is, which is crazy. The kung flu's done this too, which is yeah. this is epic. Yeah, we're we're yeah. at a point now where you talk about reset. Well, this is definitely going to be the reset, but I don't think it's going to go the way the, uh, the globalists wanted to go. No, uh, yeah. it's not going the way. Actually, that's one good thing about Putin. <laughs> he kind of, he kind of screwed that up for everybody. The whole global thing, <laughs> the world, one world government. It's like, I don't know how that's going to work. You know, there might be two or three world governments, you know, Chinese, Russians, and everybody else. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, man, I, I enjoyed it. You know, like I said, I got, I'm a, I'm opinionated. Uh, I'm not politically correct and I don't care. No, um, we're the same. We're the know, same. We're say, the exact oh, same. Say what you want. Right? You know, at the end of the day, my job is the way I see it. My purpose in life is to motivate and inspire other people to be the best they can be. Use my stories to do that if I have to. Um, but I also feel like it's my responsibility um, to stand up for you know the ones that are you know downtrodden, the weak, you know, and and do that part as well, right? My mom once asked me, goes, son, why do you why do you have to be the one that goes out and does all this stuff? And I looked at my mom and said, Mom, if I don't do it, who's gonna do it? Exactly. It's not like everybody's lining up to go out and fight bad guys, you know, and it's not like everybody's capable of doing it like I can, you know. I was lucky, you know. And uh so that's why I do it because I can. Yeah. You know? That's it, you know. So now awesome mate. Well right. again, appreciate you uh you know, coming on and sharing your story. We, you know, we're pumped to put this one out and share it to our Australian listeners. We've got a lot of Australian listeners, and obviously we've got a lot of American listeners as well. But, um, again, thank you for coming on and giving us your wealth of experience and y- your stories. Anytime. It's been awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's been amazing. Anytime. Appreciate it. Cheers, Dale. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, mate. Hey, guys. Take care. Catch ya. <laughs> My dog said goodbye, too. <laughs> Bye, guys. Shane, have a that one. Mate, that was epic. He's um, he is like, Jim, like, like Jimmy, Watt, yeah. Jimmy Watson, but more refined. In a sense. refined Jimmy Watson. Yeah. He'd have just like we he just kept talking yes. because he's just got so much to talk about. Like you could not He'd even, be full of knowledge. You couldn't. You know the things that he's done. His bio was like ten pages long. He's done everything. He's got a doctorate. He's got. 
He's done university degrees. Yeah. He was Delta Force. He was um, and he's been airborne. Nearly every combat except for what wasn't he? Which he did say was a, like an air war. Yeah, like, every operation um, possible. So you know that was uh, insightful. And other stuff we haven't heard of, like with CIA and OGA stuff. Like, yeah. there'd be heaps more. There'd be stacks more. Oh, mate, he's got but he's more, um, and more and more, and he's had a very. Crazy career, and he was he probably sixty, maybe just on yeah, sixty. Yeah, yeah, and um, around that. I'm not good at maths, but yeah, let's just say he's about sixty odd, and he's he doesn't seem like he's gonna going to slow down anytime soon. No, nah, nah, he just <laughs> yeah, just more and more and more like nonstop, which is which is super cool, and obviously he's been super successful in business as well. Yeah. And I'm um, sure our listeners will get a, a lot out of that, especially the last like forty minutes. You know, there was so much. To take in. That's it. And, you know, when we asked him that two questions, you know, about the giving people advice, his, that story was the way I do things. I, I envision yeah. where I want to go and where I love for my businesses now. I see the end goal already. It's just, you know, that vision, you got to apply yourself as well. You know, that's one of the yeah. biggest things, apply yourself. You know, you don't have to be the smartest. I'm not, I can't even spell half the time. I can't even talk half the time. But Happen? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, w- what a cool dude. Dale Comstock. He's, Dale um, Comstock. He is the American badass, uh, the official American badass. Check him out on there'll Instagram. There'll be plenty of YouTube. There'll be shitloads of YouTube. Yeah, he's got these massive handlebars. He's had, him, he's had him since he was young. And I saw a photo on his, on, his, on his gram earlier. This photo was probably when he was like 20-odd. He's had, he had no, no. No, the photos I saw of him like in Delta Force, he actually looked like a Delta Force operator. Because there was one he was running, running around in his bloody, what do they call them? Fatigues. Fatigues, yeah. He's running around in his fatigues. Might have, might have just been like a. I, no, that, I think that's a, like with Terry Crews and that when he got out. Because uh, he got out in 2001 just before. Everything kicked off again. Yeah, everything kicked off okay. again. Did he? Was there any photos of him in, in with the hair? Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 uh, I'll, make, sure share, I'll make sure I share them. What a I story. have seen his face before. That photo with him and Terry Crews. Yeah. I've, I've seen his ball. I've watched that TV show. And uh, so if you want to get in contact with him, head to his official American, American Badass. Badass, which is on Instagram, and shoot him a message. He's uh, super insightful. It's actually surprising. Like He's been on TVs, a uh, few like films. He's just a uh, chill dude. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just just one of those dudes. And Have you seen him in Bali? Because I know we've got so many Aussies here. Like, yeah. You guys go yeah. Bali frequently. Lives, lives in so Bali. If, if you see a dog at a nightclub, it's probably probably his. Probably his, yeah. Probably his bloody business. He's yeah, got. which is uh, super cool. His book, he's got a book as well. It's called American, American Badass. American Badass. He's got five more coming and out. And he's got five more coming out Jesus and a couple Christ. of movies. <laughs> and Yeah, he's a, yeah. He's action man. He's actually, he is literally... MacGyver. Like Charlie Sheen slash MacGyver slash Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne, Christ, Chuck Jason Norris. Bourne. All put into one guy with uh, handlebars. So you could say he's just a modern day Shane Cording. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> he's not on Grinder, so it's not Shane Cording. <laughs> uh, but guys, that one was a doozy. We got up we got we got we got up early for that one. Um and yeah, like I said, he lives over in, in Florida. Living the dream. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if you want to find our stuff, head to zero.limits.podcast on uh, Instagram and the other one, There's link trees there, Spotify, you'll you'll find us all. Yep, exactly. So you'll find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all those other ones, Stitcher, yeah, the seeps. And if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and yep. you know helps us spread the word 
and uh, share these hectic stories. You know, I was just, as I showed Shane before, working on a bit of a list. Yeah. You know, who we've been talking to, and this list is, oh, I'll touch on it now. You know, we've got, yeah, and we've got uh, Mark Lamb, American Sheriff, coming up as well, which is super cool. He's got 180,000 followers. Who, sorry? He's the American Sheriff of... I uh, said American Chef, like Iron Chef champion. <laughs> <laughs> Iron Chef. Um, a Sheriff. Did I say Chef or Sheriff? Yeah, Sheriff. I might have, might have said Chef. We'll bring that up. John Mattingly is actually another one. He's another police officer in the US. He was involved with the Brianna. Brianna? Brianna. I'll have to check these names. I don't even know. Uh, anyway, she was shot by the police. Shot in the leg, wasn't she? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Well, she got shot in the leg. But it's the whole uh, part of the whole Black Lives Matter thing. And he was, one of, the, he was one of the police officers and he actually got shot in the leg. But yeah, anyway, so we've got heaps of people lined up and that's just some of the, some of the people. And uh, just quickly, I'd like to give a couple of shout outs. We do have a couple of uh, small little businesses that, you know, listen to us. And I think we're going to do this just moving forward. Just a couple of shout outs. One of them is a veteran in a van. Yes, you've actually started following me. Yes, uh, Veteran Event is a group connecting military, emergency service, law enforcement, veterans through caravan and camping. Yes, he's going. Where is he now? He usually puts on his gram where he is. He is outback New small South. room in HMS Canimbla, <laughs> which is, I think, is what he calls his van. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> HMS Canimbla, I was on a sister ship, Manura. And one of our OG listeners, let me just quickly bring it up. It is the Boneyard Street Surfers, handmade skateboards. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's located. Yeah. Actually, it's in Melbourne, Victoria. So if you need one of those, you know, those big, long Californian-style yeah. cruisers, if you want to get one of those, head to www.boneyardstreetsurfers.com. <laughs> That's a fucking cool Yeah, name. just the, these are just shouts. We're not getting paid for none of this. We're just shouting out uh, people Dude. that... You know, listen to us and, you know, love our stuff. So, yeah. all right, boys and Ladies. girls. Ciao, ciao. See us. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it. Get your discounts. So again, jump on to 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.